Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. We are um, we are right in the middle of the Christmas season. Uh, so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have one, we actually have one available for you at the ends of the aisles, maybe under your seat, tucked behind you. You might have to search for it a little bit. It'll be fun. You can find it. Um, we, uh, we're excited to be walking through this um, through this passage in this Christmas season, it's been, um, man, it's been a joy to look at how God is Jesus, the promised Messiah, is exactly that. He's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. We're kind of exploring each one of those names um, that were given for Jesus. Uh, and so today we're just going to continue that. My name is Drew. If you're new here, um, hello. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Brian also uh, is one of the pastors here. We team teach. This is something that we do. We prepare sermons. Um, we talk about passages, lay out sermon series, and then one at a time we kind of get up here along with um, Hunter and a couple others that will teach here from time to time. So it's my honor to be able to just bring the word this morning. Um, all right, so before we jump into our passage today, I think we need to acknowledge if you weren't here last week, just kind of where we've been and where we went last week. Uh, we did two things. The first thing that we did is that we acknowledge that Christmas begins in the darkness. Um, we are, um, as we're studying Isaiah chapter 9, what you find is that it begins with this statement that there will be no more gloom. Uh, and the reason that it says that is because Isaiah chapter 8 um, ends with darkness. Um, it says distress, darkness, and gloom. And while you're in like a Christmas season of just like cheer and excitement and, you know, you go everywhere that you go, there's just like lights and there's presents and there's parties and there's so much to do. It kind of feels unfamiliar to look at the begin the Christmas season in darkness. But when you look at scripture, what you see is that this promise, the reason that this promise, which described as a light is brings so much hope is because you're familiar with the darkness. And so while it may seem unfamiliar to you now to, to kind of settle into a moment of darkness, um, I'm praying that it's refreshing. Because um, as we talked about last week, you can only do so much to agree for a season that we're going to enter into a time of peace, maybe a month. But January comes and February comes. And the things that are dark in our lives can only be suppressed for so long. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, darkness is still present. And so when you look at scripture and you see passages that don't actually try to suppress that, it actually invites you into acknowledging that the world does have darkness. And from that, it teaches us together to long for the light. So that's what Isaiah is doing here, is he's not pushing over some dark times, he's actually saying, out of that darkness, you were made for the light. And that's the whole point of Christmas, is that together we would begin to long for the light. The way that it's described in Matthew, the arrival of Christ is a new dawn. Um, and so the second thing that we did, we, we looked at darkness, but then we also begin to observe the nature of the light that we are going to, we are promised in Isaiah chapter nine. It's not ambiguous, it's not said in general terms. Um, he says 700 years before Jesus arrives, Isaiah says that there will be a child, there will be a son that is given, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's, 
extremely specific. And so we looked at what it means that one, that Jesus was and is our wonderful counselor. Um, Specifically in three ways, we said a counselor is someone that knows wisdom and provides counsel. (laughs) A counselor is someone that knows us better than we know ourselves. Um, And a counselor is someone that is present with us. But if Jesus, this is the whole point, Jesus is all of these things. If you have someone that is just knows you well and can provide counsel um, and is present with you, you have a good friend or maybe a trusted counselor. But Jesus is a savior. And so he's not just a wonderful counselor. Jesus is a mighty God. He possesses a power to actually make a difference. So that is what sets him apart. That he is both a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the Prince of Peace. So today, let's look, about, let's look at how Jesus is a mighty God. Um, we're going to start in verse 3. So Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 3, if you're, if you're there... Um, Join with me. Also, we have um, some uh, both English and Spanish translations of the Bible. So if you need one, they're on the windowsill. Just want you to have a copy of the word in your hands. All right. So Isaiah 9 uh, verses 3 through 6. Says you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me pray. Father, thank you, um, thank you for the light. I pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word and we observe this light, Lord. I pray that you would call us out of darkness. Lord, I know um, in my own life and Lord, in a room in, of any size that Lord, there are things that we just keep hidden so well. And so Lord, I pray that your light would just pierce those through the darkness and that it would find those things, Lord, and that you would draw them into the light and you would begin to do what only you can do and you would heal and restore. Father, can you do that today and throughout this Christmas season, Lord, as we anticipate the arrival of Christ, Lord, may there be a celebration um, that is truly worship. Father, we love you. In your name, amen. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about the power of God. Uh, power. Jesus is described as a mighty God, um, and one of the things that we'll find is that power and uh, weakness are oftentimes a lot closer than we realize throughout the scriptures. Uh, and so, 
the way that I think about it is this. I, um, I played basketball growing up. I have a lot of injuries. Grew up in a family of four boys. And so you just acquire injuries. Uh, Marky hurt his shoulder. He's already hurt his leg. He's had a cast on and now his shoulder is hurt. And I'm just like, we did not go through this with the girls. But he's aggressive, man, you know? And I appreciate it. I don't want to hold him back. Um, but there will be casts in his future. And so either way, I grew up in a family of four boys. And one of the things that we did was just played basketball all the time. Um, when I was in college, I, um, I broke my ACL. Um, and so I'll never forget the play. Went up um, and I came down, a kid, his foot hit my foot and my leg just landed weird and it just, you know, you didn't need to hear that noise. So it, uh, that's, that's just how I always tell it. And I remember the doctor, I remember going to the doctor and I remember him saying, man, I, I remember being like, man, I don't know what I'm gonna be able to do. First of all, I don't know how people are recovering as quick as they do now with these injuries, but that's another topic. But Adam's like, I just feel like I'm never gonna be able to play basketball again. I feel weak. And he's like, you know, I understand that. But he said, if, you, if we treat this right, um, this leg will be stronger than your other one. And he's just saying, you're weak now, but this weakness, if addressed correctly, actually can turn into a strength. Um, and I'll never forget that because now the opposite knee hurts. And I'm like, I should have just got them both done, you know? <laughs> um, but what you see is that in our lives and in scripture, these two things that we often think of as polar opposites, power, strength, and weakness actually are far closer to each other than we realize. And we don't see that anywhere more clearly than what we see with Christ and specifically in passages like this. So we get these names for Jesus. You've heard them, we'll say them again. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Uh, and these names are names that are, Isaiah says, both to anticipate what Jesus will be, but also they described who God has been. So the names that Jesus is given are things that are displayed through Christ, but they're also things that they have experienced from God the Father up until that point. So when, when, when Isaiah is putting these names on the Messiah, he's describing something that is actually quite scandalous. That you would give these names to anyone other than the Father is um, a scandalous thing. But if it's the Messiah, and if that's who he is, and it sets the stage for God with us, Emmanuel. I think today as we look at mighty God, um, we're probably gonna go somewhere that we didn't, maybe you didn't anticipate when you came in. Um, I don't know how many of you woke up this morning thinking about Jerubbabel and the Midianites. You did, right? Yes. Um, I told Doug that he's got a son on the way. It's a great name for a son, Jerubbabel. Um, I think uh, if you did think of that the first thing this morning, we should talk. We're probably going to be good friends. Uh, but we have a lot of context just to like kind of get our footing. And this is when we look at Isaiah 9, most often all we do is we talk about these names. But what we've tried to do is say these names were spoken at a specific point to a specific people for a reason and a purpose. And so there's a lot going on and they, they mean a whole lot to these people. So. The first thing that I want us to see, if I were to just, maybe this is the only thing we might get to today. But the first thing I want us to see is that the power of God is seen in weakness. The power of God is seen in weakness. All right, so we are, we are just going to walk through this one bit at a time. Um, we've been given the context that there is a light. The Isaiah chapter 9 begins with, there will no longer be any gloom for you. 
And so he's calling them out of darkness and into the light. And he begins to describe that light in verse two. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen this great light. light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then he says, you have, he begins to describe not only what, that there will be light, but what will this light do? And he says in verse three, he says, you have multiplied the nations. What do we say? This is not just something about what will happen through Christ, but this is about something what God has done. So from the beginning, God went to Abraham and he said to Abraham that I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And so God has done that, but that wasn't the complete. Was that all that God said to Abraham? God said to Abraham that he will multiply his family and that ultimately that there will be a blessing to the entire earth, that there would be a multitude of nations that come out of Abraham. And so while God has multiplied, what we see right here is that this light, one of the attributes about this light is that it's going to make a way for a multitude of nations to be amongst the people of God. It's gonna multiply. And then he says, it's gonna, in that, it's going to increase your joy. This light is going to increase your joy. I think that's something that is just a picture of what we, I mean, that's a human thing. We walk around, we put lights all over our city. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? I don't know, Christmas time comes around and we just put lights up. But there's something about, there's something about light that brings joy. It's just innate to us. And so you see that right here. He says, this, this light is going to bring you, it's gonna increase your joy but then he gives two descriptors. He says, joy, as, as of the joy that you have at the, har- the harvest, and they're gonna be glad as if when they divide the spoil. This joy he uses is a dis- in, in order to help them understand what kind of joy it would be. It's a joy of provision. He says, the Lord, from the beginning of time, what he has done is he had instructed you to reap and to sow and you are going to and there's all of these festivals that are placed all throughout the calendar year for the people of israel and one of them is just for the joy of the harvest and that they would bring in this harvest and that there would be plenty um i our city group is gonna have uh we've got our christmas dinner lined up we just planned everything out last week and it's very exciting. We've got a ham on the way, which I'm most excited about, but everyone's got the sides and we're like, we're gonna need multiple tables and there's nothing like it, you know? And you get like, does someone have a house big enough? And you just kind of like throw all the food out there and the kids are running around and everyone's sitting around the table. And while you're like, your heart's like completely full. And the reason that it's full is not just because that there's, there's food at the table, but because that there's something that we were all meant to have, which is, connection with other people that we are meant to be known and to know each other and so as you gather around this table you're celebrating something that was given to you which is not just sustenance but actually the communion that you have together and there's a joy in that there's provision and there's this he's like this is the joy that you're going to have joy is like the joy that you have at the harvest and then he also says that you're going to have this joy um And it's gonna be like the joy that you have when you divide the spoil. So there's all these battles all throughout scripture. We try not to shy away from, we just went through Joshua. (laughs) So there's a lot of battles. Um, But as these battles take place, the people would bring back the spoils and these spoils would then be, the riches would then be divided among the people. And so this light that is coming into the world is going to conquer our battles and it's gonna take the riches of our enemies and it's going to divide it amongst the people of God as it's 
fully theirs. That's what this light is going to do for us. He says, you're going to divide, the, you're going to have this kind of joy where there's going to be an abundance of wealth because of the light that is coming into the world. And then check this out. He says, um, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Um, so the yoke and the staff and the rod were all meant to oppress people. And he's saying this burden that you carry, um, this is why Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that Jesus invites us into a place where we're no longer burdened by the things that we often are burdened by, the anxieties that are always there, the pressure that's always there. But he says, you're gonna have victory in a way that those things are broken. This light is gonna break these things. And then he says, it's gonna break it as it broke at Midian. All right. Um, so this may be, this may be my favorite story in all of scripture. It, outside of maybe obviously Christ, that's not fair. But this is, this is one of my favorites. I, I think um, Judges chapter six and chapter seven, we didn't get to it in our Joshua series. We stopped just short of it. But the context for this passage, this is what Isaiah is doing. He's laying this story. We have these stories in our lives, right? Where when we go through certain things, you say, hey, do you remember when we did this? Like God brought us through that. And because God brought us through that, he can do it again. Like over time, and I think that's one of the things that builds up resilience in our life where you get to someone that's been walking with the Lord for just a long, long time. And you're like, man, it feels like chaos is around him, but they're just a steady hand. And when you ask them why, like what brought that in them, they tell you about the battles that the Lord has won for them, you know? And this is one of those where he's saying, this is something that God is going to do, but do you remember Midian? <laughs> um, the story of Midian is uh, the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel in, Judge, in Judges chapter six. It says that the people of Israel did what was right in God's sight. And so God uses the Midianites to, to oppress them. And actually it says that Israel was pushed into the mountains and they were living in caves and dens. And every time that they would that they would sow seeds, the Midianites, before the harvest, they would come in like, like locust is the description, and they would take all of the harvest, and so they were left with nothing. And so now you have God's people hiding in caves with zero provision, and God goes to a man named Gideon. And this man, Gideon, um, is a unique biblical character. Uh, you meet him threshing wheat in a wine press, which is an odd thing. Because if you're threshing wheat, the whole point is that you need the wind to push away the chaff, but he's in a wine press because he's terrified. And God shows up to Gideon and he says, he says, you are a mighty warrior, <laughs> which is the opposite of what Gideon is. And the very first thing that Gideon says is in his response, he's like, I am the, I am the least in the least of the tribes. God is, Gideon's acknowledging that you have come to the weakest man in all of Israel. And so Gideon, in his fear, as he's threshing this wheat, um, God begins to instruct him that he is gonna use him to conquer the Midianites. And there's a couple other things that happen, but eventually God begins to assemble his army around Gideon. And there were 23,000 people 
32. My math was off. There were 32,000 people. And God looks at Gideon and the very first thing that he says to him is there's too many people. Because if you were to conquer them like this, you would think that you'd done it on your own strength. And so Gideon says, okay, what do I do? And God says, tell anyone that's scared that they can go home and 22,000 people left. So now you're left with 10. There's the math part. 10,000 people. Um, and the Lord says, there's still too many people. He says, okay, what do we do? He says, bring them to the brook. And there's anyone who drinks and laps water, that kneels down and laps water, you can tell them to go home. But someone that brings the drink up to their hand that you can, you can keep them and they'll fight with you. The only ones that brought the water up to their hand were 300 people. So now you have Gideon and 300 men from 32,000. And so now you have Gideon and he goes down into the Midianite army. He looks at the Midianite army at night and it says that they were like sand on the seashore. And you have Gideon and his 300 and this incredibly massive army. And God does something that only God can do. And he calls Gideon and he says, if you're afraid, just go down to the camp and listen. So Gideon goes down to the camp and he overhears what God was already doing on his behalf. That there were whispers of the, of the Israelites. And they said, I, I've heard that God has given Israel, like Midian into Israel's hand. And so they're terrified. And then God does what only he can do. And he uses trumpets and he uses like breaking jars and he uses noise. And the people begin to cause a chaos and they run and God conquers the Midianites. And everything about that, as I read that, I'm like, okay, but what does that have to do with Isaiah chapter nine? <laughs> You know, but it has something to do with it because that's what, that is the foundation that was laid before the incredible promise that there is going to be a son that is given. There's going to be a child that is born and he is going to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The reason that this story is told is because oftentimes, most often, is that God does the absolute impossible and he uses the weakest of people. And so when he is displaying this, he's saying, do you remember the impossible? Do you remember when God did what only God could do? He's saying there's a light that is coming into the world. And that light is going to be a child. Um, I think um, every year and probably even more so now that I have a son, I am amazed more at this truth that when Jesus came, he came as a child. I was looking back at my phone at pictures of, of Mark, he comes up a lot, but I was looking back at my phone at pictures of Marcus and you just see his growth. But I remember when he was, I mean, just days old and there is nothing more vulnerable and a tiny child. And God's whole plan, like with all of his wisdom, with all of his counsel, with everything that needs to be done, God's plan rests in Luke chapter two in a manger. That God would bring a child and that a battle would be fought, but this battle would have incredible odds. Like when we think of power and we think of God conquering, we think of what we would do. We look at the tribe of Midian and we see those 300 men and we would say, don't go down there. 
you're not going to make it. That is not what power looks like. But what you see here in the story of Christ is that power oftentimes, especially in Scripture, is seen in weakness. So Jesus is this baby in a manger. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. I was reading articles about the inn. It says many, um, this was uh, Christianity Today, it said many experts in this time period argued that the word translated inn in our New Testament text probably doesn't refer to the Middle Eastern equivalent of a hotel or a motel. The problem is not one of overbooked rooms. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach suggests that the inn refers to a form of public shelter, usually a two-story house in which the lower story was for animals and for the upper floor was for guests in a one-story building with a stable attached. This is, I just couldn't get this out of my mind. Why? 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 Why does God come like that? It doesn't make any sense. If you're going to come as a child, why are you not born in a palace? At least a palace. Why doesn't he come as this mighty warrior? Why don't we see him differently? But you're like, God comes to the most unsuspecting of places and in the weakest of forms. It's like, it's like God coming to Philadelphia in some random street in Kensington. where I, It's where I see shelters. And I'm like, we don't have room for you here, but you can be born around the corner. It's like our God, our Savior, plan A, no other plan. This is it, is innocent child born vulnerable. And I'm like, how is that God's plan? And yet it is. Question is, do you think God couldn't have provided a better place? And it's not that God didn't lack the power to do that. It's that his power is displayed in weakness. Um, it's the counterintuitive nature of the power of God displayed all throughout the life of Christ. It's not just in the beginning, but Christ's story begins in the manger where he's rejected and it ends on a cross where he's alone. The whole story of scripture is weakness. And the whole story of Jesus is power displayed in weakness. He can calm the waves and still the seas, and yet he gives himself over to other leaders and worldly leaders. He can heal, he can heal sickness with just a touch, and yet his body is broken and destroyed for us. He can call Lazarus out of the grave just so that he can go in. And all over this story is a savior that possesses a power that this world has never known. We have never had that kind of power embodied in a person, and yet he chooses weakness. I think um, the way that, um, the reason that the manger is important and the way that Bonhoeffer talks about this, um, he says this, says, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? What a, that guy. Um, Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism um, beside the manger. Whoever 
remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. I think the manger becomes a distraction all throughout the story of Christ that people say, how could you be the savior? That you were born, you're from a family, we know your family from Nazareth. You're just a lowly carpenter. You're the son of a carpenter. How? How could you be the one? And I think if we're not careful, that's the same trap that we could fall into, that we could look at a manger and we could say, how could this be? How could God's plan be that he would send a child, a vulnerable child, and that would be how he would restore the world to himself? But I think what Bonhoeffer is inviting us into here. And I think what we see in Isaiah is that the invitation is that the manger itself, the vulnerability that's possessed in Christ in a manger would be an invitation into seeing him most clearly. That when you see him lowly, that you see him correctly. Because that's how God designed for him to be. And I think in order to see him that way, the reason that this truth is so important for us this season is in order for us to see him that way, we have to acknowledge our weakness also. So everything in us wants to dismiss the fact that we have weaknesses. We hide them so well. And for a long time, like from friends, from people that we would call like best friends. And we will, they will discover things in our lives that were hidden and intentionally hidden for a long time. We hide our weaknesses. It just is a part of what we do. And what happens when you see Christ in his weakness, what you're, you have to acknowledge is that when that weakness is actually possesses the strength that you need to overcome your weaknesses, what he's inviting you into, what the light is doing is that it's saying you can acknowledge these weaknesses and in these weaknesses, because Christ is sufficient and he's not just a counselor, he's a mighty God and he has the power, he, has, he can be your savior. Those weaknesses can actually be transformed and they can be used to display the power of God in our lives. So in that way, we almost enter into this lowliness with Christ himself. You see Paul just celebrate this. This is what it looks like, not just in Isaiah, but this is what it looks like for, we said multitude of people and a multitude of nations. This is what this looks like for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul had learned this throughout his life. He's like, I have these weaknesses. What do I do with these weaknesses? But one of the things that he's found is that as he brings those weaknesses to Christ, who is the one that has the power to overcome them, that these weaknesses actually began to be used as a benefit for him. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, I think the invitation is for you to acknowledge that you are weak. We don't have as much control as we like to think that we have. 
You know, sometimes we have all these things that protect us, whether it's our salary, whether it's a, a job, whether it's just the house that we live in, all of these things can be torn down with one phone call. Like one single phone call and your world can collapse. As much as we like to say that we have everything under control, we just don't. We need someone who has a greater power than the power that we possess ourselves. And so you run to the one who displays this weakness and you find in it a power that invites you to embrace these weaknesses because he has given you something that can actually overcome them. That's the invitation. Um, I don't know that we're gonna have time for the second point. I think I wanna, we're gonna take communion here at the end. Um, and I just wanted to give an extended time for that because I think um, oftentimes it takes us just a moment for us to give up things that we've held on to for a long time. Um, but I did wanna end with this. Um, at the very end of what we read today, um, in Isaiah 9, in verse 7, after we get wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. And it says with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And look at what he says here. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, as I thought about that, I thought about um, God as our leader. And one of the instructions that is most convicting for me as an elder of, of our church is the instruction that I get in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, which says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly. He's saying these leaders that are among you, they should shepherd um, not because they have to, but because they are drawn to this, because they long for this. They long for your maturity. They long for you to grow in Christ. That's what it looks like for someone to lead you well. And he says, the example that you're given is God, as God would have you. And he says, they don't do this for their own gain, but they do this eagerly. Don't we long for leaders like that? We want that. We need that. And when I look at this, I think so often, um, when we look at God, I know in my life that you, we portray on him something that's not true. And I just want to kind of pull it away. Um, sometimes when we, when we look at our unfaithfulness, when you look all throughout the scriptures and you see Israel and their unfaithfulness and you see that in your own life and you see that we just struggle to put one foot in front of the other, there's part of us that begins to question, is God not done with me yet? Like, have you ever been there at that point where you're like, surely God's tired because I'm tired. And there has to be like his grace at some point has to run dry. And I want you to see this salvation ends with this statement, not about just what will happen and what it will be like, but what he says in the end right here is the heart in which God will do this. He is doing and bringing this salvation with zeal. So as a leader, I look at you and I'm like, I should lead with zeal and I don't always do it. 
And there's certainly times that you do it incorrectly, but when we look to God and you look at him as your leader, I want you to like see this, please see this. He loves you and longs for your maturity and growth. That there's no part of him that is tired or fatigued by your sin, that he's making a way. And he does this with eager joy. There's a zeal, a desire for you to know him that leads him to make this path. All of this. So if there's ever a moment where you feel like the Lord is, there's no more, and you've sinned again, I want you to look at this and say, God has continued to call you into this message of salvation, and he doesn't see that. There's a zeal that he has for you. Um, that zeal in the most unexpected of ways is embodied in a manger. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, give us some time here uh, to take communion. I think this table is a reminder. I... Um, <laughs> I, I love that when Jesus sat down with his disciples at this table, one of the first things that he says is that he longed to sit with them at this table. That there was a part of him that just looked forward to the moment where they would then be around the table and he could take these things and he could remind them of who God is. And so he gives him the bread and he gives him the cup and he said, the bread it represents my body, which is broken. And the, the blood represents, I mean, the cup, the wine represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. And so as you take these things, I want you to acknowledge that Christ took on the weakest of forms. And in that weakness, the, the incredible display of God as he goes from a manger to a cross, that God uses that, his faithfulness and his weakness, God uses it to display his power in a way that actually restores us and invites us into that light. Paul says that this, he recounts this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So until he comes, this is a proclamation for us. This is a moment where he also encourages us to assess ourselves, to examine ourselves. So I would encourage you to do that. If, that, if you're at this point um, where uh, you are, <clears throat> I was having a conversation with Josh just a moment ago, right out in the lobby. And we said this, and I think we've said it before, where sometimes when the Lord begins to press on the one thing that you're not willing to let go of, you found the thing that's keeping you from him. And I think um, these are the moments that we just need to sit in a little bit longer, where if there's a part of you, if there's some weaknesses that you're hiding, and you're just still trying to control on your own, um, I would encourage you just to go to Christ and find that those weaknesses can be restored. Um, let me pray for us. I'm going to give us a moment and then we'll come back up and um, we'll close with song. Father, um, we're here before you and we see 
that um, your ways are not our ways, or that your thoughts are not our thoughts, Lord, that you are um, your knowledge and your power goes far ahead and before us, Lord, and we see your plan as laid out through Christ that or there's a promise that was kept and that promise is represented in a manger. Lord, that there would be um, Lord, the innocence and the weakness of a baby would represent for us a savior that that would be a king that would lay in the manger, that they would possess all the power of the world and all the wisdom and knowledge, and yet they would choose weakness so that your glory would be had. Lord, would you remind us of that today? Would you show us, if there's anyone here that hasn't accepted that, Lord, would you reveal truth? Lord, would you, as a counselor, draw near? Father, we love you. Thank you for the table. Thank you for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. Pray that you be with us now in this moment. In your name, amen.